0: Former President Donald Trump is free on bond after being booked in a Georgia jail last night on charges he tried to overturn the 2020 election. It's Friday, August 25th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, reaction to Trump's fourth and latest criminal case. Plus, Republicans have generally avoided serious discussions on climate change, but there are signs that might be changing.
1: Some Republican candidates have gotten a memo that young Republican voters don't want this climate denial nonsense anymore.
0: Also, the push in Minnesota to get people who are being released from prison registered to vote. And this hour.
2: I love the night sky and I want to preserve it for
0: my children and my grandchildren. The move on Nantucket to combat light pollution. Rain today in the 70s. It's 7.01. Now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. At an Atlanta jail yesterday, former President Donald Trump was booked on conspiracy charges stemming from his attempt to overturn Georgia's 2020 presidential election results. And Pierce, Kerry Johnson has more.
4: The district attorney and the grand jury has charged a sprawling uh,
5: racketeering indictment that spans um, actions not only in Georgia but other swing states to include that alleged plot to substitute legitimate electors for Joe Biden for illegitimate fake electors who would have cast their ballots for Donald Trump,
0: um, attempts to intimidate election worker Ruby Freeman, uh, attempts to
5: lean on the Georgia Secretary of State and former Vice President Mike Pence, and even attempts to meddle with election machinery in a rural county in Georgia.
3: It's a big, big case. And Pierce Kerry Johnson. After his booking, Trump posted his mugshot to X, the site formerly known as Twitter. It was allowed back on by new owner Elon Musk after being booted over his continued lies about the 2020 election results and his incendiary tweets during the violent and deadly insurrection at the U.S. Capitol building that was carried out by his supporters. On Maui, officials have dramatically cut the number of people unaccounted for after this month's devastating fire. And Jennifer Ludden reports they've also made the names of those missing public as the death toll stands at
2: 115.
6: The new list has 388 people, way down from the 1,000 or so officials had said were still missing. Maui Police Chief John Pelletier said this list has been validated with first and last names and the contact of who reported them. Piloteers says he knows it will be painful for some to see the names, but he hopes it can help reveal that many have actually survived.
7: We are asking, if you're on this list, please contact the FBI number provided.
6: Officials say forensics teams have now covered nearly all of the burn zone. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Maui.
3: Germany's top diplomat says it was only natural to suspect the Kremlin's involvement in the presumed death of Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin. And here's Rob Schmidt's reports from Berlin.
1: Speaking at a press conference with the Kyrgyz foreign minister, German foreign minister Annalena Baerbock said there is a pattern of unclarified fatalities in Russia that underlies a dictatorial power system built on violence. Therefore, said Baerbock, it's no accident that the world immediately looks to the Kremlin when a disgraced former confidant of Russian President Vladimir Putin, quote, literally falls from the sky two months after an attempted mutiny. Baerbach added, the world must understand that with or without Wagner, Russia will continue with what she called its cynical game, not only in Ukraine, but in Africa too. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin.
3: World well, financial markets, Asian markets were lower by the close. The Nikkei, the main market in Japan, down 2%. The Hang Seng, down 1.4%. This is NPR.
0: I'm Rupa Chenoy. This is WBUR in Boston. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu today plans to outline ways her administration will deal with tent encampments in the area known as Mass and Cass. The intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Malnia Cass Boulevard has become known for drug use and an increase in violence. Wu is expected to announce a new ordinance outlining law enforcement's role in the area. It would also establish a process for the removal of tents in the area. Meantime, the mayor is endorsing two city council candidates. She says the duo will bring more practicality to a council she believes is divided by ideological lines. More now from WBUR's Simone Rios. We
7: we'll backed the successful bid of new counselor Sharon Durkin in a special election last month. Now she's endorsing two former staffers, Enrique Pepin and Henry Santana. Wu herself served eight years on the council. Some critics say she's now trying to stack the body in her favour. But at a block party in Roslindale last night, Wu
8: said her goal is to have a more functional city council.
9: I think the, the potential is there
10: at the local level more than anywhere else for that kind of connection and shared understanding to really be grounded in the reality of what people are going through, rather than rhetoric, rather than just pure ideology.
8: Boston's preliminary
7: elections take place September 12th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios.
0: The MBTA says it's making progress in addressing staffing shortages. A lack of workers has been cited as one reason for service disruptions across the T in recent months. Wars Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez
5: reports. In the four months since General Manager Phil Eng joined the MBTA, it's held community job fairs, increased salaries, and reduced background check times to just two days. Eng told the T's board of directors those efforts are paying off.
8: To date, we've hired 891 new employees to the T, and we are on pace to exceed over 1,000 new employees this year. That will be a record for us.
5: A report by the Mass Taxpayers Foundation in April estimated the T would need to hire 2,800 workers over 12 months to ensure safety and progress for 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo Hernandez. Mass Health today will
0: consider if it should cover pregnancy care from doulas. Doulas do not have formal obstetric training. A proposed change would cover doulas as Mass Health providers. Officials will meet this morning to discuss having the state's Medicaid and Children's Health Insurance Program cover the services. If approved, coverage could start as early as October. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments,
11: reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com uFund. Fidelity
0: Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. The Red Sox are back home tonight to host the Los Angeles Dodgers. The Sox beat the Astros yesterday in Houston 17-1. to Tonight in Nashville, the Patriots will take on the Titans in their final preseason game. The Pats open the regular season at home September 10th against the Eagles. Rain throughout the day today. We could also see a thunderstorm. We'll have a high in the lower 70s. Showers likely overnight. It'll be in the 60s. Cloudy with a chance for showers tomorrow. It'll be humid and in the upper 70s. Partly sunny and mid-70s on Sunday. Right now it's 63 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBR.
12: WBUR supporters include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography.
13: Kauffman.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
14: And I'm Layla Falden. Good morning. It's been a week for the former president, Donald Trump, and current Republican presidential front runner, and it was capped off when he posed for a mugshot in the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta. And that wasn't a campaign visit. Donald Trump was being booked on 13 felony counts relating to his attempts to overturn the 2020 election result, the election that he lost. Despite four different criminal indictments, including this one, he remains the GOP frontrunner. To help us break down the events of this week, we've called on NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez, who's also covering former President Trump. Hey, Franco. Hey, Leila. So... Big week for Trump, and Thursday's booking couldn't have been considered a good day for the former president and some of his associates, right?
15: No, it was not a good day at all. I mean, politically, there may be some other arguments, but this was his fourth arrest of the year in what has already been quite the year of legal struggles. You know, he flew into Atlanta, then he took this long motorcade to the jail. He made history becoming the first president, sitting or otherwise, to have a mugshot taken. The whole thing took about 20, 25 minutes, and back at the airport, he did address press. He said he did nothing wrong. He called this election interference. And as you noted, he wasn't the only one who surrendered to authorities yesterday. His chief of staff, Mark Meadows, also traveled to Atlanta and got his mugshot taken. There was a lot of speculation about him because of his integral role in Trump's efforts to overturn the election. And there's many others, former mayor of New York, Mayor Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, his lawyer, another lawyer, John Eastman. It's really a long list, 18 COVID defendants.
14: Yeah, and I mean, this came after a pretty eventful week with rivals debating his relevance and surrendering in Georgia. Uh, What's ahead for Trump in the coming weeks?
15: Yeah, the indictments are just the beginning. I mean, it's just one of four, and the hearings are going to start soon. The first hearing, actually on federal charges related to January 6th, starts on Monday. And Trump is also not stopping his run for president. Mm-hmm. He's promising to get it back out there, get back out the road and meet with voters. And he's incorporating these cases into his messaging that this is all unfair, that it's a two-tiered system of justice against conservatives in order to galvanize support and money.
14: So how will all these cases impact his run for
15: 2024? I mean, it's hard to imagine. I mean, his legal calendar and his political calendar are already starting to clash. The trip to Georgia, for example, was just a day after the first Mm -hmm. Republican debate. I mean, obviously he skipped. And, you know, as we were noting before, the calendar is not going to clear up anytime soon for him. I mean, trial dates are scattered throughout early 2024. Voters are going to start weighing in on the January caucuses in Iowa. And then you have the major presidential primaries following special counsel Jack Smith and other prosecutors. Prosecutors have proposed a first federal trial date starting in January 6th. He's also due in court in March on New York state charges. All this is running together.
14: Wow. And he's returned to X, formerly Twitter, where he was banned before Elon Musk took over. His comeback post is his mugshot. So what does that tell us about the narrative
15: Trump's spinning here? I mean, it's another example of how he's not running away from all these cases. He's working it into his narrative of his political campaign. And it is his first post in about two years. I mean, folks are going to remember how he used Twitter as a megaphone when he ran for office last time and throughout his time in the White House. So it's, you know, it's pretty amazing.
14: NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordenas, thank you so much.
13: Thank you, Leila. Now, at the Republican debate in Wisconsin, this song was playing before the candidates spoke.
16: These rich men, know the rich men. Lord knows they all just want to have total control. Wanna
13: know what the song is Rich Men, North of Richmond by Oliver Anthony, who was an unknown artist until the song hit the top of the Billboard Hot 100. Now, this song fits into a tradition of protest music calling out the fat cats who exploit working people. There are many genres of this kind of song. And on the other hand, it's drawn criticism because it leans into extremist conspiracy theories. Morning Edition's Michelle Martin wanted to hear more about both sides of the song, so she reached out to Anastasia Siolkas from NPR's Culture Desk and Odette Youssef, who covers domestic extremism for NPR News.
17: What exactly in this song is raising so many
13: red flags?
18: Yeah, so it's one line, Michelle, that says, I wish politicians would look out for minors." that's minors with an E, and not just minors on an island somewhere. That second one is a minors with an O. That second part, minors on an island somewhere, is a reference to the Jeffrey Epstein scandal, You'll recall, Michelle, that Epstein died in jail in 2019 and in the far right, there continue to be conspiracy theories about the circumstances of his death. If you listen to some other Oliver Anthony content online, he talks about human trafficking and about people taking advantage of children, which together form sort of the foundation of the QAnon conspiracy theory. And so it's really remarkable to see a song referencing these kind of out there, baseless narratives achieving this mainstream success. And it's causing some concern to people who've looked at the role that pop
17: culture has played in normalizing and spreading extremist ideas. Could you say more about that? Like, what role would a song like this play in spreading extremist ideas? So,
18: I spoke with Jared Holt about this. He's a senior researcher at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. He said it's not new to see a political movement and even extremist movements latching onto cultural artifacts like music or movies to normalize their ideas. But what he's taking note of here is how the song has been seized on by some far right influencers, people who've made a profession of sowing discord in the U.S. by spreading disinformation about things like COVID vaccines or LGBTQ people.
19: If these far right figures are successful in associating themselves directly with this song, it could potentially open up a wider audience that they might normally not
8: have access to.
17: So let's talk a little bit more about the song itself. Anastasia, let's go to you you for this. It seems like this comes amid a bigger string of chart successes for country music this summer. Sure, Michelle. I mean, we're
5: at a really singular moment. Earlier this month, for the first time in Billboard history, three country artists occupied the top three spaces on the Billboard 100. It was led by Jason Aldean's Try That in a Small Town at number 1, Morgan Wallen's Last Night and Number Two. There's also been a lot of conversation around those artists in particular already, especially when it comes to politics and racial tensions. Back in early 2021, a video of Morgan Wallen using the N-word went viral, but then he went on to have the best-selling album of that year across any genre. And the Jason Aldean video shows Aldean singing in front of a courthouse where a black teenager was lynched.
17: Hmm. So let me just ask about this artist, though, Oliver Anthony. I think it's fair to say that a few weeks ago, very few people had heard of him. He'd never had a song on any charts before, and now he's number one. So Anastasia, can you talk a little bit about, like, how did that happen? He seems
5: to be the beneficiary of a huge signal boost. The song was only posted online two weeks ago, but within days, commentators and podcasters like Joe Rogan, Laura Ingram, and Matt Walsh were praising him, and then, of course, his song was very much front and center at the GOP debate. There's also a very interesting thing going on specifically related to the algorithm that's used to figure the Billboard charts. The calculations still weigh purchase songs and album downloads more heavily than streams. And I spoke to a music journalist who specializes in country music, Natalie Weiner, and she made a fascinating point about how music lovers sometimes game that chart algorithm to boost their favorite artists. And she compared Oliver Anthony to the fans of pop acts like the Korean band BTS. Fan armies have purchased downloads for a long time, because it has a heavier weight on the charts, you know, so if they want to push an artist up, they will just purchase downloads, quote unquote, voting with your money, voting with your wallet. Something like that would take a lot of deep music industry savvy, Michelle. And it's not clear that Oliver Anthony's fans are that well
17: organized, at least not quite yet. That is Anastasia Silkis from NPR's Culture Desk. And we also heard from Odette Youssef, who covers domestic extremism. Thank you both so much for joining us.
14: Thank you thanks for having us the BRICS group of emerging nations has invited six more countries to join the bloc which aims to challenge perceived western dominance in global affairs china's president xi jinping one of the original member countries called the expansion historic as the summit wrapped up in johannesburg from where kate bartlett reports
10: in the end despite some hiccups along the way Summit host South African President Cyril Ramaphosa could claim a certain amount of success.
20: We have decided to invite the Argentine Republic, the Arab Republic of Egypt, the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia, the Islamic Republic of Iran, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. These
10: six countries can now join the emerging bloc of nations BRICS, the acronym for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, On January 1st next year. Together the five current members already comprise about 40% of the global population and a quarter of global gross domestic product, but it's hardly a homogenous grouping and these additions will make it less so.
8: There might be some surprises there, uh, particularly Iran and Saudi Arabia in the same organization.
10: Stephen Gruest is an analyst at the South African Institute of International Affairs.
8: What will this do to the BRICS? We'll have to see as time goes by whether it will change the approach, the ethos and particularly the tone.
10: But the additions will no doubt make the bloc stronger, especially with the inclusion of oil-rich Saudi Arabia, Iran and the United Arab Emirates. Russia's Vladimir Putin, the leader of another major oil producer and BRICS member, attended the summit virtually. That allowed South Africa to avoid the diplomatic nightmare of having to arrest him for war crimes in Ukraine under an international criminal court warrant. For NPR News, I'm Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg.
14: This is NPR News.
0: Good morning. I'm Rupa Chinoy. You've made it to the end of the week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we look at how the subject of climate change was handled at this week's first GOP presidential primary debate and what that might say about emerging discussions on the topic among Republicans. It's
13: 7:19. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by
21: donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at wbur.org slash
19: cars. Music heals the soul. Can it also heal the body?
2: Decreased heart rate, decreased blood pressure. We affect their perception of pain. Actually improve their response to stressors in their environment, like illness and disease.
19: I'm Meghna Chakrabarti. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The
0: Ashland Commuter Rail Station will shut down tomorrow and stay closed through the fall. The MBTA says the closure will allow it to do $2.5 million of repairs and improvements. That includes new stairs and walkways and improving the platform. Shuttle bus service will connect people to other stations on the framingham worcester line. Showers and maybe a thunderstorm likely today we will have some gusty winds and high temperatures will be near 72. Tonight, more rain possible as it falls to lows around 68. We may see more showers and thunderstorms tomorrow. Otherwise, mostly cloudy with a high near 80. Sunday, partly sunny and a high near 74. Right now, it's 64 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station.
6: And from Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top-choice colleges, Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at myprompt.com slash NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com and from the Cy Sims Foundation since 1985 supporting advances in science education and the arts towards a fairer more just and civil society more information is available at saisimsfoundation.org
14: this is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falded.
13: And I'm Steve Inskeep. The movie Golda depicts the only woman ever to serve as Prime Minister of Israel. Her name was Golda Meir, a chain-smoking politician in her 70s. Helen Mirren plays the Prime Minister who receives a warning in 1973 about the Arab nations surrounding Israel.
22: Marwan says the attack will begin around sundown. Soviet diplomats and their families are leaving Egypt. If he's right, we have less than 12 hours to prepare.
13: It's a true story. Armies attacked from Egypt and Syria, and unlike its other wars, Israel was unready. The film's director, Guy Nativ, grew up in Israel in the aftermath.
23: I was born in 1973. My mom, you know, went to the shelter with me as a baby. My father went to the front. And I grew up on nothing. Nobody spoke about Golda or the war or what really happened there. It was kind of a secret. Why would it have been so? Because there were so many ups and, and Golda took the blame. She was the scapegoat of this war. The movie brings to
13: mind Darkest Hour, the film about Winston Churchill in 1940 in World War II. You see a famous leader at the moment when everything is coming apart. As the enemy attacks, Meyer visits army headquarters to listen to radio transmissions of Israeli troops in retreat or being killed. When Helen Mirren played Britain's Queen Elizabeth, she had every hair in place. As Golda Meir, strands of hair fly out and catch the light. She lives alone and climbs the stairs to a rooftop to consider her next moves while looking over Tel Aviv in the dark. Guy Native says two aides of the real life Golda Meir are still
23: alive. These two people gave us all those little uh, information, like that she was led into Hadassah Hospital at 2 a.m. to get those radiology treatments and smoke during them, and how many cigarettes she smoked a day. And she became really human, Golda.
13: If I may, I don't think I'm giving anything away to note that in the film, Golda ear. It's brought in for cancer treatment and smokes all the way through the treatment. You're telling me that is a true detail so far as you know.
23: Everything that you see in this movie is true based on people that knew her. She smoked packets a day, uh, drank 30 black coffee a day, and did not really eat. She was killing herself in a way that the country was killing itself.
13: Um, I'm tempted to see that as a response to stress. Do you see it that way?
23: Oh, totally, and, and not only stress. you know, she it's, it's a country 30 years uh, before there was a Holocaust. So just imagine these people, especially Golda, that went through so much horrific stuff in Ukraine as a kid.
13: Golda Meir was born in Ukraine. Her memoir says of her early years that she mainly knew poverty, cold, hunger, and fear. The fear came from mobs that sometimes walked through Kyiv threatening Jews. Her family moved to Wisconsin in the early 1900s, and then she emigrated to the new state of Israel, which emerged independent after a war.
23: There is a PTSD, giant PTSD, and, and just, you know, walking with a sense that you will be decimated. So yeah, I think it's stress. I think the whole approach to refuse to talk to the enemy is also connected to the Holocaust. I think this is um something that was there in their DNA.
22: We are fighting for our lives. If the Americans throw us to the dogs and the Arabs reach Tel Aviv, I will not be taken alive.
13: The Prime Minister appealed to the United States for weapons, negotiating with Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, played here by Liev Schreiber.
10: Madam Prime Minister, in uh, terms of our work together, I think it's important that you remember that I am first an American. Second, I am Secretary of State. And third,
22: I am a Jew. You forget that in Israel, we read from right to left.
13: And though Israel survived, her war was remembered as a disaster.
23: I think that uh, this movie comes in a very troubling time for Israel because it's it's a film about blindness and deafness of, of these leaders who couldn't see each other, couldn't see from one meter, couldn't see the front, couldn't see themselves, couldn't see what's going on. And that's exactly what's going on right now, 50 years later, with Benjamin Netanyahu's um, cabinet and himself. They are blind.
13: He's referring to the current government's effort to weaken Israel's
23: judiciary they are leading us to catastrophe. I went with the veterans of Yom Kippur to demonstrate in Tel Aviv streets. um, And, you know, on their shirts, those veterans, it said, I fought the Yom Kippur war. This is Yom Kippur war of democracy. For Israelis, this is a movie that brings um, horrible memories and, and kind of a full circle to a debacle again.
13: So one of the parallels that you see between then and now is that the leadership then was blind somewhat, or blinded themselves to the danger. You're saying that the current government, led by Benjamin Netanyahu, is blind to what danger exactly?
23: Um, To a danger of many, many pilots and army people saying, listen, if you're going to diminish the judicial system, we are not fighting for you because they say, we are fighting for the kingdom, not the king. And that's the big difference between Golda and Benjamin Netanyahu. She thought about the people. She didn't think about herself. That's why she took the blame. She resigned. She left with a great shame because she cared about those soldiers. Benjamin Netanyahu cares about only one person, himself.
13: When you talk about events in Israel, it's common for almost any discussion to reach back into the past. Guy Nativ, the director of Golda, aims to illuminate some of that past as he thinks of the present. The film opens in the United States today.
14: You know, I was listening to this, Steve, and thinking, Where do the Palestinians fit into this story?
13: I asked Guy Nativ that question. He acknowledges he could have said more. There is a brief clip of Palestinians driven from a village in the film. He also says Golda Meir could have done more for Palestinians, which just indicates how much the story in the Middle East changes depending on the perspective that you choose. In this case, he chooses the perspective of Israel's first and only, so far, female leader. It's Morning Edition from NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition, we learn about efforts on Nantucket to combat light pollution. It's 729. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today.
16: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A preliminary assessment from U.S. intelligence officials concludes Yevgeny Prigozhin was very likely targeted in this week's crash of a business jet outside Moscow. That assessment concludes the Embraer Legacy 600 was brought down by an intentional explosion. The jet broke apart in midair before plummeting thousands of feet into a field. Nine others aboard were also killed. Former President Donald Trump has been booked on 13 counts related to election interference in Georgia. Trump turned himself in at the Fulton County Jail yesterday. He spent about 20 minutes there where he had his mugshot taken before being released. NPR's
15: Franco Ordonez has more. This is just one of four indictments. The first hearing related to January 6th is on Monday on federal charges. Within hours, his super PAC was circulating his mugshot to stoke support and raise money. And apparently he's returned to Twitter, or as it's X, as it's called now, posting his mugshot. It's the first time he's posted in more than two years.
16: Before leaving Atlanta, Trump denounced the charges against him and 18 others as more election interference. Trump remains the frontrunner for the GOP presidential nomination. More extreme heat is expected today along the Gulf Coast of the U.S., from Texas to the Florida Panhandle, northward to Iowa. This is NPR News from Washington.
0: This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shinoi. The state's first officer disciplinary database was released this week, and it's missing some key information. Several former police chiefs who were investigated and ousted after misconduct investigations are not included. WBUR's Ellie Manning has more.
9: Among those missing from the data set is former Chief Ashley Gonzalez. He was fired from Brookline last year after a sexual harassment investigation. But you wouldn't know it from looking at the post site. Sophia Hall is an attorney with lawyers for civil rights.
4: She says transparency and accountability should matter for police leaders, too.
9: It only matters for the rank and file, but not those that are decision makers, not those that are supervisors of others' conduct. Then that's really concerning because... It feels like we're only getting the low-hanging fruit. A Post spokesperson didn't know why Gonzalez was missing from the database. Brookline reported no officers with significant discipline. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani.
0: The Massachusetts Steamship Authority now has access to over5 million dollars in annual federal grants. Federal transit officials designed the ferry from designated the ferry from Hyannis to Nantucket as a commuter service. That's after they tried to deny the status earlier this year. The designation gives the agency access to more consistent funding. The Boston Symphony Orchestra kicks off its tour in Europe today. It's the orchestra's first tour of the continent since 2018. The group will perform in London tonight. The BSO will perform 12 shows in nine cities over the next couple of weeks. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin
11: Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at
0: Zevin.com. Tonight, the Red Sox welcome Mookie Betts back to Fenway Park for the first time in four years. Betts is now a superstar with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Boston and L.A. will begin a three-game series tonight. Yesterday, the Red Sox beat the Astros 17-1 to in in Houston, the team split that four-game series. Also tonight, the Patriots visit the Tennessee Titans in their final preseason game. A rainy Friday today with showers and a thunderstorm likely. It'll be windy with highs in the low 70s. Temperatures fall only slightly tonight into the upper 60s, and there are more showers and thunderstorms possible. Saturday, a chance of more rain, otherwise mostly cloudy, and a high around 80. Partly sunny on Sunday with a high near 74. Right now, it's 64 degrees in Boston, you're with WBUR.
6: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, Whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help npr be the model for high quality journalism in the 21st century and from the sustaining members of this npr station
14: it's morning edition from npr news i'm leila folded and i'm
13: Inski. something unusual happened in the republican presidential debate this week the candidates were asked about climate change a subject that the Republican Party often downplays or ignores or mocks. One of the first questions put climate change front and center.
18: Do you believe
13: in human behavior is causing
18: climate change? Raise your hand if you do.
13: Moderators did not get a clear answer from everybody on that one, but NPR politics reporter Jimena Bastillo is here. Good morning.
24: Good morning. Did it
13: surprise you at all that this topic even came up?
24: You know, I wasn't actually personally surprised, but... I know climate change traditionally also isn't a major issue for the Republican Party. However, I do talk a lot to young voters, and it is an issue for younger voters across party lines. Hmm. There is a group of young conservatives who really wanted climate on the agenda in this debate, and they got it. The moderators played a question from a college student named Alexander Diaz, and he asked candidates to reassure young conservatives.
19: How will you, as both President of the United States and leader of the Republican Party, calm their fears that the Republican Party doesn't care about climate change? This is
13: really interesting because we think of it as a partisan divide, but I think you're telling me it's more of a generational divide. Younger people, regardless of party, are more likely to recognize the science here. So how did the candidates answer?
24: Well, there really was a range. Vivek Ramaswamy, he's a 38-year-old tech executive, said the, quote, climate agenda is a hoax. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis pretty much avoided the question. Mm -hmm. South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, however, acknowledged that climate change is a threat, but she downplayed U.S. responsibility.
3: Is climate change real? Yes, it is. But if you want to go and really change the environment, then we need
11: to start telling China and India that they have to lower their emissions.
3: I should
24: note that while China is currently the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases, the U.S. has significantly higher per capita emissions than either China or India. Hmm. Other candidates sidestepped the issue by attacking climate solutions like renewable energy production, but they didn't necessarily offer alternatives.
13: Okay, so you're telling me that young conservatives have driven this on the agenda and made Republican leaders respond. How did the people you spoke with feel about the answers?
24: Well, I spoke to Danielle Butcher-France, she's the CEO of the American Conservation Coalition. She said it's at least a start that the candidates got asked about climate change.
18: Let's do some level setting on that. I think most people understand that in a Republican primary, climate change is not going to be the number one issue. But I think we're looking for an acknowledgement of the problem and an
24: understanding of the solutions. She says that there's still a lot of room for improvement and Republicans need to find ways to own the issue if they want the support of younger voters. That's also shown in recent polling. An NPR poll this month found that nearly 60 percent of voters ages 18 to 29 agreed addressing climate change should be a priority. You know,
13: we've done some reporting on this on the program. Uh, A lot of conservatives are now approaching climate change by saying, "Okay, human caused climate change is real, but it's not a big deal. They still don't want to do a lot about it. Could climate change play a big role in the 2024 election?
24: Well, like most election questions, the truth is it's too soon to tell, but it is a big issue for young voters. And with young voters, sometimes the question is whether they choose to turn out or not, whether they're motivated. And so an issue like climate change could play a role in particularly really close and tight races. Edward Maybach is the director of George Mason's Center for Climate Change Communication, and he said the debate suggests GOP candidates are at least hearing from younger voters.
1: Some Republican candidates have gotten a memo from their pollster that young Republican voters don't want this climate denial nonsense
13: anymore.
24: He said the bar is low, but it's still some progress.
13: NPR's Jimena Bastillo, thanks. Go get some coffee.
14: Thank you. Ethiopia's civil war ended last year, but a new report alleges that members of the military have continued to commit widespread acts of sexual violence on civilians. NPR's Ari Daniel reports, and a note, listeners, you will find the details in this story disturbing.
19: In the report, there are just two photos, each of a different woman, stand-ins for the women and girls across Tigray in the country's north who've allegedly suffered the torture and assaults detailed in the report. Dr. Ranit Mishori is senior medical advisor with U.S.-based Physicians for Human Rights. The group co-authored the report.
4: Sexual violence is being used as a tactic to harm populations, to terrorize populations. The cases are very brutal and quite horrifying.
19: The other co-author is the Organization for Justice and Accountability in the Horn of Africa. Here's someone with that group.
4: The report highlights the really
24: systematic, widespread, and non-random nature of these attacks.
19: This woman asks that we not use her name because she fears speaking out could make her or her family a target of reprisal.
24: In the vast majority of the cases, there were multiple perpetrators. It was often accompanied by physical violence.
19: Sexual violence used by armed forces during the Civil War has been reported previously by the U.S. State Department, Amnesty International, but this new report shows that months after the peace agreement was signed, sexual violence against women and girls has continued. The findings were drawn from medical records at multiple health facilities across Tigray. More than 300 records detailing conflict-related sexual violence involving girls and women from ages eight to 69, with nearly half occurring after the ceasefire. In some cases, family members were killed. Many of the survivors faced medical complications. Dr. Mishori
4: really severe physical scars, reproductive organs being damaged. These things can impact women's lives for decades. And then we had individuals with obviously severe trauma and mental health issues, uh, PTSD and depression and anxiety.
19: Not to mention numerous unintended pregnancies and for some, HIV infection. Medical treatments been delayed or non-existent due to Tukrai's crumbling healthcare system that itself came under fire in the war. As for who's to blame for this violence?
4: Most of the survivors pointed the finger at people wearing military fatigue. So while it's hard to know exactly who they were, from the records, they were all members of military or paramilitary groups.
19: Most likely, according to the report, groups associated with the governments of Ethiopia and neighboring Eritrea. NPR reached out to both governments for comment, but neither has yet responded. In February, Eritrean President Isaias Afwerki was asked about alleged rape and other abuses in Tigray by his country's forces. He called it a, quote, fantasy.
25: For those who come to promote their agendas in the region we say enough is enough.
19: The authors of the report say urgent medical and psychosocial support is needed for these women, as well as justice.
24: There needs to be a really credible, measurable justice system in place that can help address the serious human rights violations and that can hold perpetrators accountable.
19: The researchers say their report captures just a sliver of this kind of violence, and they hope it brings attention to the suffering of a people in a part of the world they say doesn't get enough attention or help. Ra Daniel, NPR News. This is NPR News.
0: Thanks for listening to WBUR on this Friday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, a national shortage of bus drivers forced schools in Kentucky to close last week as officials scramble to find new ways to get kids to class. Low 70s and windy and rainy throughout the day today. There's a chance we may also see a thunderstorm. More showers possible tonight as it dips into the 60s. Showers and thunderstorms are also possible tomorrow. Otherwise, it'll be overcast and in the upper 70s. Partly sunny on Sunday in the mid-70s. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston. We're funded
11: by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities
0: at vrtx.com. This week marks five years since MGM Springfield opened as the state's first resort casino. Adam Frenier reports that it's had its share of ups and downs.
21: The casino has been missing the mark on initial revenue and hiring projections. There was also the pandemic, which caused MGM to shut down for several months and led to long-term limited operations when it did reopen. In terms of jobs, we stand over 1,500 strong today. That's MGM Springfield CEO Chris Kelly. The casino had about 2,000 employees in March of 2020 before COVID hit, about a thousand below projections. It has hundreds of vacancies it is currently trying to fill. But there have been some positives. Kelly says MGM has generated more than $400 million in state and municipal revenue. And there's been an uptick in entertainment offerings at the MGM-managed Mass Mutual Center. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Freinier. Clover Food
0: Labs blames low sales and high taxes for the closure of its restaurant in Copley Square. The vegetarian fast food chain announced yesterday the location was closing immediately. Employees there have been offered positions at other Clover restaurants. It's 7.44.
6: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com.
0: This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Chenoy. When we think about pollution, dirty air or water is usually what comes to mind. But light pollution also affects our health. On Nantucket, one resident took that concern to heart and made it her mission to protect the island's dark skies. WBOR's Paula Morto reports that her efforts led to a new light pollution bylaw. It's a new moon and the skies are dark and cloudless in Nantucket.
25: Two volunteers are on a mission to measure how dark the island sky is. They recorded the outing on their cell phone.
2: We've arrived at one of the eight locations that we take readings at. It's near the
25: airport. That's Gail Walker president and founder of the nonprofit Nantucket Lights. Walker is with Regina Jorgensen, director of astronomy at the Mariah Mitchell Association, a partner in the project. Jorgensen lifts a machine about the size of a cell phone up to the sky. We're waiting
2: for the beep. There you go.
25: That click means it took a reading. The sky here is quite bright. They've been doing these measurements for a year now, Jorgensen says.
9: To compare now as we move forward, future readings to see if our efforts to help reduce light pollution are actually working.
25: Nantucket's dark skies are unique. Because the island is 30 miles from the coast, it's less affected by light pollution. It's one of the few places in eastern Massachusetts where people can see the Milky Way with the naked eye.
9: When you have a dark sky, you just see so much more. You know, it's not just uh, 10 to 20 stars, but you see, you know, hundreds to thousands of stars.
25: Protecting the stargazing for recreation isn't the only reason behind the bylaw. There are two active observatories on the island. They are operated by the Mariah Mitchell Association, named after the first American female astronomer to discover a comet. Astronomer Regina Jorgensen says the observatory's optical telescopes rely on the dark skies.
9: The telescope is more or less seeing the same thing that your eyes see. We just do long exposures so that we can see fainter light.
25: In recent years, many blue light LEDs were installed as outdoor lighting. This colder light is problematic, says Kelly Biddy, with the nonprofit Dark Sky International.
7: It's blue light that most affects animals and bugs and pollinators, fireflies, for example. And it is blue light that is most disruptive to us, humans, to our circadian system, our ability to get to sleep.
25: Beatty says warmer color LEDs are less harmful. Nantucket has worked to protect dark skies before. They passed regulations to limit outdoor lighting in 2005, but advocates say those became outdated. That's where Gail Walker stepped in. A few years ago, in her role with the Neighborhood Association, Walker began receiving complaints about light pollution. So she created a nonprofit to address the problem. She reached out to light experts to help write an updated bylaw. And she spent almost two years building support for it.
2: I love the night sky and I want to preserve it for my children and my grandchildren. But more broadly, I just wanted to do something to give back to the Nantucket community.
25: She wants Nantucket to reach a new landmark soon, becoming the first international dark sky community in the Northeast. The town's bylaw was crafted with this goal in mind. Walker hopes that it will inspire other communities to do the same and support tourism on the island. Walker isn't alone. Other advocates have been pushing a statewide bill to regulate lighting in future state and municipal projects. That bill is not as restrictive as Nantucket's bylaw, but it hasn't passed yet. And even in Nantucket, not everyone supported the new town regulations. School Superintendent Elizabeth Hallett proposed an amendment to exempt town buildings from the bylaw. She spoke at a town meeting earlier this year.
9: It could create a dangerous
6: and unsafe environment throughout our entire campus.
25: The amendment didn't pass. The bylaw already has exemptions for safety and emergency situations. The new bylaw regulates all types of outdoor lights. Homes, businesses and public buildings will be given five years to update existing lighting. And starting next year, new lighting will have to comply with the regulations. There are four main requirements, Walker says. First, most lights have to be shielded, which means having a cover that points the light down. Second, outdoor lights must be in a warmer range, within limits recommended by the Massachusetts Medical Society.
2: There's a restriction on color temperature, and that has to do with how much blue light is emitted from the light fixture.
25: Third, there's a limit on how bright the lights can be. Each property has a total brightness limit. And lastly, outdoor lights will be required to be turned off from 11 p.m. to 6 a.m., with some exceptions. Okay, I'm out here at Wall Winnett. On the other side of the island, Walker arrives at another site where volunteers take monthly brightness readings. It's near a wildlife refuge, a small community, and a hotel. This time, the reading is darker. That's because they're so little artificial light nearby, which is just wonderful. Any lights that are on are fully shielded. The work to make the whole island dark sky friendly is just starting, Walker says. She's preparing a handbook to guide residents and businesses. She also plans to raise funds to help those who can't afford the changes. For 9.9 WBUR, I'm Paula (laughs) Moura.
0: It's Friday. That means it's time for StoryCorps, coming up at 825 on WBOR's Morning Edition. Two people who met last year during a shooting on a Brooklyn subway remember how they became friends. It's 752. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the
11: colorful
4: fabric portraits of Bahamian artist Gio Swaby. on view now.
19: Learn more at PEM.org. Music heals the soul. Can it also heal the body?
2: Decreased heart rate, decreased blood pressure. We affect their perception of pain, actually improve their response to stressors in their environment, like illness and disease.
19: I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's On Point, this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Donald Trump has become the first American president with a mugshot following his booking last night in Georgia on charges he tried to overturn the 2020 election. Maui officials have released the names of nearly 400 people still missing following the deadly wildfires there. And Russia is denying claims that Vladimir Putin gave orders to kill the leader behind a failed coup in the country. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
18: WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and
0: home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com There's a good chance of showers and maybe a thunderstorm throughout the day today. It'll be windy and in the low 70s, the rain may continue tonight as it falls into the 60s. Cloudy tomorrow and near 80 with a chance of more showers and thunderstorms. Then it clears up for a partly sunny day on Sunday in the mid-70s right now it's 64 degrees in boston
13: it's morning edition from npr news i'm steven skeep
0: and i'm leila Fadel. a recent
14: change in minnesota voting laws allow formerly incarcerated people to register to vote as soon as they're released but as minnesota public radio's brian baxter reports getting them to the polls is a whole other matter
7: at one of minnesota's highest security correctional facilities Layers of prison doors shut behind Secretary of State Steve Simon as he heads inside to meet with a group of 15 inmates. All are due to walk out of the Stillwater prison by the end of October and settle into new homes, jobs, and routines. Simon is there to urge them to add one more thing to the reentry plan, registering to vote.
12: Can I ask a quick question, if you care to say,
15: how many of you have voted in the past?
7: only a few hands go up.
15: Man, you got political power the minute you step out of here. And it's a gift. And use your power, use your voice, that's my advice. I know you have a ton of other things to
19: think about, but I just hope this is on the list.
7: They'll get a voter registration form in their prison discharge packet. And they won't have to wait even a day to fill it out, thanks to a new state law that restores voting rights immediately, rather than upon completion of supervised release or probation. That's estimated to affect 55,000 people. Robert Clark says he'll be signing up to vote when he leaves Stillwater in less than two months. I want people to understand that we have a voice and it's not just because we've been to prison that we're bad people and they're gonna come us out. Derek Burgess, also on the cusp of freedom, tells Simon he's motivated to vote as well. But he jokes. This is going to get
20: me in trouble. I'm a Trump supporter. My significant other is a Democrat. You feel me? And now I can vote when I get out in the next couple weeks? This is crazy, man. <laughs> you know, about to get in trouble, man.
7: Minnesota is one of several states this year to have expanded or tightened rules around voting eligibility for the formerly incarcerated. Sarah Walker is a Democratic consultant who has worked on re efforts around the country. She says voter participation among this group remains low.
8: So this group has historically not been targeted by voter engagement. So I think that's one barrier, like you have to make a conscious effort to actually engage this population.
7: Walker says standards that differ by state feed confusion about eligibility. That can make people hesitant to vote out of fear they'll get tangled up again in the justice system. She adds that who delivers the message is also key.
8: If you have a shared life experience, and lived experience, you're gonna have more credibility with someone
7: who can relate to you. Antonio Williams led a canvas this summer in St. Paul.
20: This is going to be our turf, so we're gonna split up and take both sides of the street.
7: He served 13 years on a murder accessory conviction. He's been out of prison for a few years, but without the new law, wouldn't have regained voting eligibility until 2025. Williams leans into the open window of a parked car and strikes up a conversation with a man inside.
20: Don't matter if you're on parole, probation, none of that. If you are not incarcerated, your voting rights are automatically restored. Brother, you can vote. You can vote. I'm still on parole and probation right now.
7: So I'm gonna ask you, can I register you to vote? Williams is anticipating a rush of feelings when he goes to the polls this year for municipal elections. And now here I am,
20: able to vote. It's real, but it's still like one of those things until I cast my ballot, (laughs) you know, then it's gonna be like, oh wow, I just did it, you know? There are other
7: signs of growing acceptance of the formerly incarcerated in political life.
4: Hi, everyone.
7: (laughs) Miranda Pacheco celebrated with supporters after advancing this month through a primary election for city council in Duluth, the fifth largest city in Minnesota.
5: Up until very recently, I didn't have the right to vote. Um, a few months ago, Duluth hadn't heard of
7: me. Pacheco spent her childhood dealing with abuse, teen pregnancy, and housing instability. Her 20s and 30s were marked by bouts with addiction and transgressions that landed her a felony record. Now 43, Pacheco moved off probation in April and is well beyond her troubled past, while keeping that part of her life front and center, even in a campaign.
5: It's just me, like, I can't lie, I can't hide it. That is my strength. I turned my life around, right?
7: And Pacheco, who cast her first ever vote for herself, knows there's extra significance in her story.
5: I wanna help empower people, and so if people could see, you know, like, hey, look, Miranda's a felon.
7: Pacheco choked back emotion as she thanked the crowd.
5: You voted for the person who fights hard, even when hope seems impossible
7: she understands that November could bring more elation or a letdown. But Pacheco says either way, she feels like she's been invited back into society and been given power through her vote. For NPR News,
13: I'm Brian Baxt in Duluth. It's NPR News.
0: Windy and rainy today with temperatures in the low 70s. More showers and thunderstorms are possible tonight, and it'll be in the upper 60s. Right now, it's 64 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm
11: All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR,
0: Boston's NPR news station. Donald Trump has become the first sitting or former U.S. president to be photographed for a mugshot after being booked on criminal charges in Atlanta last night. It's Friday, August 25th. This is WP Mars Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, what the presumed death of Russian mercenary leader Yeguni Pogosian means for African countries where his soldiers operate. Also this hour. There are not
26: enough people interested in being bus drivers. The compensation has really not kept
0: up with the need in the marketplace. Districts across the country continue to struggle amidst a shortage of school bus drivers. And a scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Falmouth weighs in on Japan's release of Treated radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean.
12: The risk is really, really, really low. The doses that people get and the doses that the ecosystem get just won't be significant.
0: Rain today in the 70s. It's 8.01. Now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Former President Donald Trump was booked and released from the Fulton County Jail last night. In brief remarks departing Atlanta's Hartfield-Jackson Airport, he attacked the charges as a, quote, travity of justice. Georgia Public Broadcasting's Stephen Fowler has more.
21: Trump faces 13 felony counts under a sweeping racketeering conspiracy case for trying and failing to overturn his 2020 election defeat. After about 20 minutes of processing inside the jail, including a booking photo, Trump returned to the Atlanta airport. He defended his actions, proclaimed his innocence, and accused prosecutors of political meddling.
7: What they're doing is election interference. They're trying to interfere with an election.
21: 18 other people also face charges in the case. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Atlanta.
3: Maui County is suing Hawaiian Electric Company, compla- uh, claiming rather the utility was negligent when it failed to power down electrical equipment during heavy winds and oversight the county's leaders say helped to fuel the deadliest wildfire in modern U.S. history. Hawaii Electric says it's disappointed over the suit as the investigation into the cause of the fire continues. Meanwhile, authorities have lowered the number of people listed as missing from around 1,000 to 388, and they're releasing their names. Police Chief John Pelletier.
7: Once those names come out, it can and will cause pain for some folks that are affected by this. This is not an easy thing to do, but we want to make sure that we are doing everything we can possibly to make this investigation the most complete, thorough to
3: date. The death toll stands at 115 people. Wall Street will be watching this morning's speech by Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell. He's scheduled to address economists and central bankers in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And Pierre Scott Horsley says investors will be looking for clues on whether the Fed policymakers might continue raising interest rates at their next meeting in September.
15: Last year, Powell delivered some tough medicine at Jackson Hole, saying the Fed would move aggressively to tamp down inflation, even if that resulted in short-term pain for families and businesses. Today, there's not much doubt about the Fed's commitment to getting prices under control. The central bank has raised interest rates sharply, and inflation has cooled from more than 9 percent last summer to just over 3 percent last month. That's still above the Fed's target, though. Powell and other Fed policymakers have left the door open to additional rate hikes. At their last meeting, some members of the rate-setting committee said it's important to consider the risk of pushing rates too high, along with the danger of not doing enough. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington.
3: And as investors await that speech, U.S. futures contracts are trading higher. Dow futures are up nearly three-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ futures are up a fraction. S&P 500 futures are up about two-tenths of a percent. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. A county in upstate New York has agreed to settle a lawsuit brought by a transgender woman who alleged she was assaulted and discriminated against at the local jail. Phoebe Taylor-Uvolo with member station WSKG has more.
24: 25-year-old Makayla Holland says while in the Broome County Jail, she was denied her medications, housed with men, and abused by corrections officers. In a video provided by the New York Civil Liberties Union, Holland says she felt dehumanized by the jail.
27: I did not feel like my life mattered. I was going through things, and I was going through a lot without my medication.
24: In the settlement, The county jail agreed to house people in a way consistent with their gender identity and provide access to gender-affirming care. Holland will also receive $160,000 in compensation. For NPR News, I'm Phoebe Taylor-Vuolo in Binghamton.
3: NASA and SpaceX last night delayed the launch of a Dragon spacecraft with four astronauts on board for what it calls additional analysis. The specific reason, though, isn't known. The new launch time now is set for tomorrow morning. The spacecraft is heading to the International Space Station to replace the astronauts on board that station who have been there since March. Asian markets were lower by the close. The Nikkei, the main market in Japan, down 2 percent. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong down 1.4 percent. Crude oil futures are trading higher, up 1.2 percent at $80.02 a barrel. I'm Janine
0: Herbst, NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is expected to outline new steps her administration is taking to deal with the tent encampment in the area known as Mass and Cass. The mayor is expected to outline a new ordinance regarding removing tents from the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. More now from WBUR's Deborah Becker.
14: The mayor will be joined by public health officials, as well as Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox and Suffolk County District Attorney Kevin Hayden. Wu has said she wants a new ordinance that would explicitly outline law enforcement's role in the area and the removal of tents. Some social service agencies have pulled their outreach workers from the neighborhood because of increasing violence, and the mayor has said conditions there are a public safety threat. Wu cleared tents from the area more than a year and a half ago, but the city City estimates that more than 200 people are now congregating there. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker.
0: Mayor Wu will be a guest later today on Radio Boston to talk about her plans for the Mass and Cass area. Listen this morning at 11 here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Foxboro is the latest community expecting the arrival of a large group of migrant families. Town officials say they were notified by Governor Healey's office that as many as 93 migrant families would soon be placed in a hotel there. Those families are expected to begin arriving as soon as next week. Town leaders say they plan to meet with area nonprofits to help connect the families with basic necessities. Boston teachers and activists are calling for greater equity in the hiring and retention of black educators. More than 50 people gathered at district headquarters yesterday, arguing that not enough has been done. WBUR's Emily piper Valillo reports. In their letter
4: a year ago, more than a dozen retired educators alleged BPS disproportionately put administrators of color through investigations in order to force them to resign. Former BPS educator Jeanne Burton says she left Boston Public Schools due to a lack of support. She questions districts that claim it's hard to recruit educators of color.
5: What are you actually doing to get educators of color in the school and what are you doing to retain them? How are you supporting them?
4: A spokesperson for BPS said the district is committed to creating a diverse workforce that reflects the identities of its students. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Emily piper Valillo. It's eight o eight.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela
0: Moan thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. The Red Sox begin a three-game series with the Los Angeles Dodgers tonight at Fenway. The Sox wrapped up their road trip yesterday with a 17-1 win over the Houston Astros. Also tonight, the Patriots will play their final preseason game of the summer. They'll visit the Tennessee Titans in Nashville. Rain throughout the day today. We could also see a thunderstorm. We'll have a high in the lower 70s. Showers likely overnight. It'll be in the 60s. Cloudy with a chance for showers tomorrow. It'll be humid and in the upper 70s. Partly sunny and mid 70s on Sunday. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR.
13: Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
14: And I'm Leila Faldil. In a few minutes, we'll hear what's driving a nationwide shortage of school bus drivers.
13: Driving a shortage of school bus drivers. (laughs) I see what you did there. Go Go on.
14: But first... U.S. military officials think they know what happened to the leader of a Russian mercenary group. General Pat Ryder is at the Pentagon where intelligence analysts have observed the plane crash that
13: involved Yevgeny Prigozhin.
16: Our initial assessment is that it's likely Prigozhin was killed.
13: Prigozhin left behind some unfinished business. Days before his death, he released a video that talked about recruiting strong men for operations in Africa. So what is his Wagner group doing there?
14: NPR's Africa correspondent, Emmanuel Akinwato joins us from Lagos. Good morning, Emmanuel. Good morning. So how extensive is Wagner's presence in Africa right now?
27: Well, Wagner is currently significant in a handful of African countries, and they've become key there, providing support for some fragile states. But since the failed mutiny a few months ago, there's been... Various interviews, various clips of Prigozhin, many of them are hard to verify, but they show us what Wagner was trying to project about Africa and this place, this continent being increasingly important to them going forward. This video was released by Telegram channels linked to Wagner in the last week, and in it, Prigozhin implied he was in Africa, that... Wagner was making Russia great around the world and making Africa more free, in his words. But of course, that was before this incident this week.
14: Yeah. So at this point, what is the likely future of Wagner in Africa, if we know it all, and the potential impact on countries where these private soldiers
27: operate? Mm. Well, it may have some impact, it's likely to, but it's not clear yet. What we know is that in the last few years, this group has become more powerful in the Central African Republic, in Mali and then to a lesser extent maybe Libya and Sudan. You know, in the Central African Republic, they've helped secure the government there, fighting rebel groups. And in exchange, they've taken control of key mineral resources. And rights groups have documented, you know, systematic rights abuses and killings by Wagner there. Mm -hmm. And a government official from CAR recently, he lamented Prigozhin's death, but said their partnership was primarily with Russia. So you can infer that Russia's going to determine if and how things change there.
14: Okay, so how important then is the presence of the Wagner Group in Africa to Russia?
27: Well, you see this particularly in the case of Mali, for example. You know, Mali kicked out French troops that had been there since 2013 to fight Islamist insurgency, but they were deeply unpopular, you know, accused of killings, too, uh, at a wedding uh, by the UN, um, which France denied. But when France became isolated from the West, and it relied on Russia and, by extension, Wagner to fill that gap. So Wagner mercenaries help it to exploit the withdrawal of French troops that has happened in Mali, in Burkina Faso, and now likely in Niger. And this, by definition, helps Russia expand, try to expand its influence in this part of Africa.
14: So I guess what we're trying to understand fundamentally is how much the Wagner group and Russia stumbles in the short term in Africa after Prigozhin's presumed death as the leader of that group. So how might that affect the stability in some of these countries you've mentioned?
27: Yes, you know, the security situations in Mali and the Central African Republic, they're very delicate. Mm-hmm. You know, in CAR, they've reportedly had some successes battling back rebel groups at least far enough to keep the government in power. While in Mali, the insurgency there is still raging, still getting worse. And just a few weeks ago, we saw large protests against the military regime because there's such fatigue with what ordinary people have been suffering there.
17: Mm. So we'll
27: have to see how Wagner's operations change. But in these countries, there are several armed groups who are able to exploit any change in the security dynamic.
14: NPR's Emmanuel too. thank you so much.
27: Thank you
1: school districts across the u.s have been struggling for years with a shortage of school bus drivers now that problem came to a head recently in louisville kentucky last week a combination of bus delays and technical malfunctions forced many schools to close temporarily angering a lot of parents and stranding some students who were left without a ride home So why are many school districts struggling to find a few good bus drivers? Molly McGee Hewitt is here to tell us about that. She's the CEO and Executive Director of the National Association for Pupil Transportation. Molly, this is the time of year where either students are back in school or about to go back to school. Um, Why are so many school districts having a shortage of bus drivers right now?
26: Well, I believe this is an ongoing shortage. So this year isn't unique, although I believe that this year is sort of the perfect storm for this issue to come out. The Louisville issue obviously brought some national attention to the issue. But really, this is an issue that's been going on pre-pandemic and before. There are not enough people at this moment interested in being bus drivers. And the position is not bringing to the profession the numbers of people we need. And I believe that's because of a variety of reasons.
1: What's been the reason why it hasn't been able to be at least uh, fixed or maybe addressed in a more efficient way?
26: I believe that school districts across the country have been dealing with this issue and trying to deal with it for several years. I think during the pandemic we obviously did not need the number of drivers that you normally would have. So we would have been recruiting and hiring during the pandemic had we been having school in the regular way. But that put a three-year hold in most school districts on hiring of bus drivers. Also most people who were bus drivers originally worked a split shift. They worked a few hours in the morning and a few hours in the afternoon. And they might've had other employment or they might've had home employment, like they might've had a farm or a ranch or something that they did in between times. Today, people are looking for a solid amount of time. That middle break does not work for most people. And also the compensation for this position has really not kept up with the need in the marketplace.
1: Now, some school districts say that they've solved this problem. We spoke with the superintendent of Montgomery County Public Schools in Maryland, Monifa McKnight, and she told us her school district uh, raised pay and guaranteed at least 30 hours of work each week for drivers, and that has helped recruit the number of drivers they needed for the school year. Let's hear what she had to say.
17: I think centering their value, their respect in all the ways that you can elevate that in the school system was really important and quite frankly everybody had a chance to do that nationally when last year across the nation we were all struggling with bus drivers
1: so molly what do you think i mean are school leaders just simply not paying drivers enough
26: well you know i think that is a part of the issue i think that one of the parts is school districts have a finite pot of money that they have and so they have a lot of calls and because school districts are made up of people over usually in most school districts over 80 percent of their budget goes into personnel costs and so when you look at running a school district and we look at teachers as being the heart of it and others that we're paying sometimes people look at what i call the support staff or the transportation folks or other parts of what I call the business side of the house, and they look at it as less important or less of a priority. The superintendent that you just quoted, she came up with a marvelous way for her district to do that. They looked at the salary, they looked at trying to improve working conditions, etc., and they also made it a priority for their district. And I think sometimes people think school bus drivers, and they just go, oh, no big deal. And I have to tell you, it is a big deal because we need to get our kids to school safely, and we need to take care of those professionals just like we take care of our classroom professionals.
1: That's Molly McGee-Hewitt, CEO and Executive Director of the National Association for Pupil Transportation. Molly, thanks.
13: Thank you so much. This next story takes us to Tennessee, where a special legislative session to address public safety was supposed to wrap up last night. Lawmakers intended to respond to a school shooting in Nashville last spring. WPLN's Blaze Gainey reports on what happened instead. Do your do your
20: do your do Activists your yelled at lawmakers as they walked through the Capitol Thursday, screaming at them to do their jobs and take action to pass gun reform laws. This is a familiar scene. After the Covenant School shooting last spring, Demonstrators flooded the state capitol with the same demands. This special session, called by Governor Bill Lee, was supposed to address those. Senator Bo Watson says it has.
15: We believe we've done what the governor brought us here to do. We passed what he gave us to pass, with the exception of one bill.
20: The Senate passed four out of the seven proposals the governor gave them, including free gun locks, more accurate background checks, a report on human trafficking, and funding for all of it. But House Speaker Cameron Sexton says that's the bare minimum.
28: At this point, they haven't put forth a single idea that's theirs. So maybe next week they'll come back and do something.
20: Thursday night, the House passed one bill to block autopsies of minors from public record and another that requires schools to have an active shooter alarm. Even though the session was scheduled to wrap up Thursday, House representatives sent those ideas to the Senate late in the day forcing them to extend or risk looking like the bad guys. But to activists and covenant parents like Melissa Alexander, they all look bad.
24: None of us have seen our children this week because of the long hours and early mornings we have spent here at the Capitol. But then again, some of our friends will never, ever see their children again.
20: Nobody was really expecting gun control legislation to come out of this special session anyway. For now, the ball is in the Senate's court. On a Monday, we'll see if they decide to compromise or further the legislative standoff. For NPR News, I'm Blaise Ganey in Nashville.
13: This afternoon, and all things considered, in the last few months, three Catholic dioceses have filed for bankruptcy protection, and another may be on the way. How does their trouble connect to the Me Too movement? Tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News.
0: Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoi. You've made it to Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Ken Bissler, a senior scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, discusses Japan's release of treated radioactive wastewater into the ocean. It's 820. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars.
1: Hey, it's Peter Sagel. Whatever your summer plans might be, maybe you're heading off to the Berkshires or the Cape or even, God forbid, somewhere outside Massachusetts, take me with you. Download the WBUR app, and you'll have every episode of Wait, Wait at your fingertips. You can listen to WBUR live from anywhere and rewind if you missed something or just want to hear one of my bon mots over again. Get the WBUR app and never miss Wait, Wait.
0: Showers and maybe a thunderstorm likely today. We'll have some gusty winds and high temperatures will be near 72. Tonight, more rain possible as it falls to lows around 68. We may see more showers and thunderstorms tomorrow. Otherwise, mostly cloudy with a high near 80. Sunday, partly sunny at a high near 74. Right now, it's 64 degrees in Boston. Support for
6: NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From Mattress Firm, whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at MattressFirm.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
13: Thank goodness it's Friday, and it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steven Skeep.
6: I echo that, thank God it's Friday,
14: yeah. and I'm Layla Falden. Some of the world's best young ball players are competing in the 76th Little League World Series. Teams traveled from places as far as Japan, Venezuela and Australia, and the championship game is coming up on Sunday. Rachel McDevitt from Member Station WITF reports from the birthplace of Little League
9: South Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Pretty much every year since 1947, fans gather in this rural Pennsylvania town for a ritual that sounds like this. When it started, the tournament only had teams from the area, then it grew to include the whole country. Now it's the whole world. In this recent matchup against Canada, the Mexico team ran away with the game in the fourth inning, scoring eight runs. Hey,
29: home runs I was like, okay, that's
9: insane. Diana Abarca is draped in a Mexican flag. Her nephew, Arath Labarin, pitched the final innings against Canada. She moved to New Jersey from Mexico years ago. This is the first time she's seeing her nephew since he was about five years old.
24: I remember like, when he
9: was little, he was all round spaced, and now he's like, he looks like a little baseball player. And I was like, oh man, time has changed. Abarca says many fans here are like her, originally from Mexico.
24: But they live around and they know like the Mexico is playing and they come to support even if they don't know the
12: kid. They're like, Mexico, yeah, yeah. I'm going to support.
9: Other fans accompanied the team all the way from Tijuana to the tournament, including pitcher Labarin's dad, Rafael. He's beaming.
28: I feel very proud and grateful to God because he brings the opportunity and I'm so happy. I'm so happy.
9: There's also a national tournament happening. Many fans are here to support the local team. Media, media, media. media Pennsylvania is representing the Mid-Atlantic region. On this day, they lost to the Metro Region team from Rhode Island. Final score: seven to two. Media coach Tom Bradley. It's
15: not the end of the world. We made it to the low league World Series. We won
18: a game, and um, you know we would have liked to win today. And you know everybody that wants to keep winning and stuff. Just
8: sometimes you run into a team that's better than you.
9: Metro coach Eric Gibri says his team is gritty, but they also have some luck on their side. The team and their parents and siblings look for four-leaf clovers ahead of their games.
28: It's just something that we started during the
0: states and carried over into regionals and something we do here takes the kids' minds off of things.
9: Metro pitcher Brady McShane says he tries not to let the crowds get to him.
2: I imagine it just at playing at a home field. Nobody's really in the stands.
9: But there are lots of fans, more than 20,000 of them, in the stands and in the steep field that overlooks the outfield behind the main stadium. Baseball is not the only sport happening here. Kids like 11-year-old Bryce Schreffler sled down the hill on cardboard. He's keeping an eye on the games and dreaming about next season.
24: I play third, catcher, and second.
9: Schreffler says he loves everything about baseball.
24: I like hitting, pitching, catching. I love baseball,
5: so like a lot.
9: (laughs) He was too young for Little League this year, but hopes to be out of the stands and on the field next year. For NPR News, I'm Rachel McDevitt in South Williamsport, Pennsylvania.
13: Friday is when we hear from StoryCorps and we have the story of a friendship. In 2022, a gunman set off smoke grenades and open fire on a subway car in Brooklyn, wounding many people. Myra Kalish and Eric Acevedo met in the aftermath. They lived two blocks from each other, but were strangers until that morning.
2: I remember the smoke and people screaming. I looked over at you, and you, you must have seen the look on my face because you said, just hold on to me.
30: I said, don't worry, don't look back. Whatever you do, just roll forward.
2: I never let go. You asked me for my name. And then I asked you for your name. Top of the stairs, we said goodbye. But every time that I went into the subway, I always went to that same exact spot because it had been months and I had been hoping that I would see you again. And one day you were there.
30: You tapped me on the shoulder and you were like, were you with me on that day? (laughs) I was like so surprised. And I was like, can I give you a hug? (laughs) And you were like, how have you been since then? And I was like, I haven't been so well.
2: When you told me that you had PTSD, like, I just felt so sad. And maybe I felt a little bit guilty because I had been able to push it aside because I had felt safe when I was holding on to you.
30: I don't want you ever feeling guilty. My life was, like, slightly crazy before. Getting on the train. My grandma started chemo in the weeks prior to that. And so on the day that you met me, I was thin as paper, but you held on to me and (laughs) I managed through. So when you told me how much I was present there for you, those words meant the world to me. And I'm glad that we're in each other's life now.
2: We have such a funny friendship because of the difference in age that we have over 30 years. I was just thinking about the time my entire family was here. You were like part of the family. (laughs) Yeah,
30: I I made it to one of the pictures. (laughs) You made
2: it in the pictures and everything.
30: That was awesome. After the diagnosis of PTSD, I silenced my life in a way. I put like a mute button on it. You're like increasing the volume in my life, right? You're giving it more sound and and more music.
2: I feel like we were put in each other's lives for a reason, and I hope that we're going to be in each other's lives for many, many years. I hope for that, too.
13: Eric Acevedo and Myra Kalish. Their conversation is archived with the other StoryCorps conversations at the Library of Congress. Hear more of their story on the StoryCorps podcast at npr.org.
6: Major support for StoryCorps comes from Dignity Memorial, dedicated to celebrating each life with compassion and attention to detail. They help to plan life celebrations now, so families don't have to later. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. And from Subaru, who along with its retailers is partnering with AdoptAClassroom.org to provide funding to high-need schools in local communities for Subaru Loves Learning. Subaru, more than a car company.
13: This is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next, and coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition. Four-time Olympic gold medalist Simone Biles is making a triumphant return to professional competitive gymnastics following a mental health break. It's
16: 8:30. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. FORMER PRESIDENT DONALD TRUMP HAS BEEN BOOKED AND RELEASED AT THE FULTON COUNTY JAIL IN GEORGIA. TRUMP IS FACING 13 COUNTS RELATED TO HIS EFFORTS TO OVERTURN THE STATE'S 2020 PRESIDENTIAL ELECTION RESULTS. TRUMP WAS AT THE JAIL YESTERDAY FOR ABOUT 20 MINUTES WHERE HIS mugshot WAS TAKEN. CHRIS Timmons IS A FORMER FEDERAL PROSECUTOR.
21: THE TRUMP mugshot THAT'S A TERRIBLE PICTURE.
16: I'M SURE HE'S TRYING TO SHOW THE UNITED STATES THAT HE'S NOT AFRAID OF THESE CHARGES, THAT HE'S ANGRY AND THAT HE'S READY TO FIGHT. Trump is one of 19 people indicted in Georgia. U.S. intelligence officials say they believe Yevgeny Prigozhin was very likely targeted in this week's crash of a business jet outside Moscow. That's according to a preliminary assessment, which concludes the jet was hit by an intentional explosion. The head of Wagner is presumed to be among the 10 people killed in the crash in Russia. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu has more on Wagner.
27: What we know is that in the last few years, this group has become more powerful in the Central African Republic, in Mali, and then to a lesser extent, maybe Libya and Sudan. You know, in the Central African Republic, they've helped secure the government there, fighting rebel groups. And in exchange, they've taken control of key mineral resources. And rights groups have documented, you know, systematic rights abuses and killings by Wagner there. This is NPR News.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. A new state database meant to shine a light on misconduct by police officers is missing some key information. The website by the state's Post Commission contains thousands of disciplinary records, but it's missing data on several former police chiefs. That includes a former Brookline chief who was fired last year following a sexual harassment investigation. A Post spokesperson did not have an explanation for the missing information. There could be more service on the Orange Line next week. That's because the T plans to add a new train to the line. It's one of the new train car sets being built in Springfield. T officials say the addition will reduce the wait time between trains to nine minutes during peak hours. One advocate in Nantucket is helping protect the island's nighttime skies from light pollution. Research shows that pollution is harmful to human and animal health and stops people from seeing the stars. More now from W.B. Warren's Palomoda.
25: The Nantucket bylaw
0: regulates the
25: brightness and color of outdoor lights, among other things. Gail Walker wrote the regulations for the island with the help of light experts. Then she gained support from the community. She's president and founder of the nonprofit Nantucket Lights.
2: I love the night sky and I want to preserve it for my children and my grandchildren. But more broadly, I just wanted to do something
25: to give back to the Nantucket community. Homes, businesses and town buildings will have five years to reach compliance. Beginning next year, any new outdoor lighting installations must be up to code. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Paula Mooder. It's 8.33.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass Berry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at
0: BassBerry.com. The Red Sox and Dodgers will play tonight at Fenway Park. It'll be the first time back in Boston for Mookie Betts. He was traded to Los Angeles four years ago. The Sox ended a road trip yesterday with a 17-to-1 win over the Houston Astros. Boston remains three and a half games out of a wild card playoff spot. Also tonight, the Patriots will visit the Tennessee Titans in their third and final preseason game. A rainy Friday today with showers and a thunderstorm likely. It'll be windy with highs in the low 70s. Temperatures fall only slightly tonight into the upper 60s, and there are more showers and thunderstorms possible. Saturday, a chance of more rain, otherwise mostly cloudy, and a high around 80. Partly sunny on Sunday with a high near 74. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston. Your WBUR. Support for NPR
6: comes from this station. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from
14: NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel, and I'm
13: Steve Inskeep. Japan is releasing treated wastewater from its Fukushima nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean. The plant melted down during a tsunami and earthquake in 2011. In all, the Japanese government is storing around 350 million gallons in more than 1,000 tanks on site. So some of it is going out into the ocean which the government says is safe. Neighboring China, which is Japan's biggest seafood buyer, is now banning seafood from Japan. Apparently doesn't believe the assurances. So how safe is the water? Let's ask Ken Bissler, who is a senior scientist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution here in the United States. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Where does this wastewater come from exactly?
28: Well, they're still trying to cool those molten down reactors. And so unlike a normal operating nuclear power plant, this water is coming in direct contact with the molten core materials, so becoming highly radioactive uh, and then stored in tanks with some initial cleanup at the site.
13: Well, that doesn't sound like anything you should be dumping in the ocean.
28: (laughs) Well, yes, and they've been only saying the last few years that they're going to be taking care of this, so we're moving, attempting to remove some of these radioactive elements from those tanks, and they've been only partially successful and only partially transparent. So they haven't released data from all the tanks and they still would have quite a cleanup job before they should be dumping.
13: Oh, meaning that you, as an expert sitting there, do not have enough publicly available information to say, yes, the water is safe.
28: Yeah, absolutely. We've been saying this for several years. They've only analyzed about 40% of those 1,000 tanks and not for all of their radioisotopes ice of concern. And, you know, this is their data. The other side is the story now is, well, trust us, we'll take care of that before we put this in the ocean. But they've had 12 years to be taking care of this. And so I'm a little disappointed this week that they haven't done that first and then made a plan.
13: Just so that I understand the science here, is this something you can take care of? By which I mean, can you start with radioactive water and dilute it or do other things to it so that it becomes just minimally radioactive? Nobody really needs to worry about it.
28: I mean, largely, yes. That's why uh, there's a lot of focus on tritium. It's one of the more abundant forms of radioactivity. It's a radioactive form of hydrogen, like the H2O in water. That's very difficult to remove, so it remains at high levels no matter what you do, and the only solution there is dilution. The concern for me is there's other forms of radioactivity, isotopes of cesium, strontium, plutonium, cobalt, If they are removed, they'll never be zero, but they would be more likely to accumulate on the seafloor or in marine life. And so concern for me is not tritium, but other things in the tank that have not yet been successfully removed.
13: Can we at least be reassured that the Pacific Ocean is very, very large and we can hope that that will dilute whatever gets dumped into it?
28: You know, solution to pollution is dilution doesn't even work though if some of these isotopes are released. So at the outfall at the pipe itself they would accumulate on the seafloor and build up over time. And we're talking 30, 40, 50 years of release, at least 30 in this case.
13: Wow. So uh, if you could tell the Japanese authorities to do one thing to clear this up in a sentence or two, what would you tell them?
28: Well, I'd like them to demonstrate. But They need to build trust, so demonstrate to the world, clean up all of those tanks, and then have someone independently analyze each one and make your plan, because there are alternatives storage on land and earthquake-proof tanks, solidifying into some form of concrete. There are ways to do this without setting the precedent of putting uh, waste in the ocean.
13: Ken Bissler, senior scientist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, thanks so much
28: for your insights. It's been my pleasure, thank you.
13: In Maui, the county government has filed a lawsuit over the wildfires that have now claimed more than 100 lives. The lawsuit claims the utility Hawaiian Electric was negligent by failing to turn off the power grid when high winds hit the island. The cause of the fire, we should note, is still under investigation. In the meantime, many people worry that ash and rubble from the devastated town of Lahaina could wash into the ocean and contaminate the water. Lauren Sommer from NPR's Climate Desk reports on the efforts to prevent that. There's very
4: little left of Lahaina's historic waterfront just piles of rubble, powdery gray ash, which is why residents like Travis Cabanilla Ocano are nervous when there's rain in the forecast.
5: Rain's gonna wash everything away, you know, and then our ocean's gonna be dead. Our reef, that's what my family lives on. You know, we do fishing, diving, everything we do is with the water. Ocano
4: lost his home in the fire. Finding housing, supporting his community, those are priorities right now. But the ocean is also part of the community for many in Lahaina, and residents don't want to see more damage done. Lieutenant Trenton Brown of the U.S. Coast Guard says they're working to prevent that.
8: We're hoping to restrict any oil or hazardous material from entering into the water.
4: Brown says the problem is that storm drains in Lahaina empty into the ocean. So county officials have surrounded them with debris catchers, basically long tubes of organic matter that act like a barrier.
8: It's just a way of almost filtering the water that enters into the storm drain.
4: The Coast Guard is also putting booms in the ocean to catch oil from burned cars. And the EPA plans to spray burned debris with a biodegradable, glue-like substance that's designed to keep the dust down. Still, Brown says some runoff is still likely to reach the ocean, and the contaminants are concerning. Kurt Sorlatzi works on coastal hazards with the U.S. Geological Survey.
28: You've got a car and the heavy metals in the catalytic converter, but then you've also burned the fuel in the gas tank and the rubber tires. There's such a wide range of chemicals in there. Same thing in a house.
4: A heavy rain could wash those chemicals into the ocean, harming the coral reefs just off the coast. Cerlatsi is working with Hawaii state agencies to put monitoring equipment in the water, which will measure the chemicals the reefs are being exposed to. That could help them understand which reefs need help.
28: A lot of this material is gonna become dissolved. So what's that zone of impact? Where do we need to do restoration or rehabilitation?
4: urban runoff is already known to be a big problem for coral reefs. Jameson Gove is a research oceanographer with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. He says the runoff from this fire could cause coral disease or death or simply make the water cloudier.
30: What that does is it blocks the sun reaching corals. And corals are photosynthetic organisms, so they need light to produce energy and therefore survive.
4: On top of that, this is an El Nino year, which means ocean temperatures could rise to dangerous levels on the reefs where the runoff would have an impact.
30: Those reefs are already compromised. Their health is compromised. And so they're less likely to resist or recover from those marine heat waves, those acute disturbances that can really devastate a reef.
4: Toxins could also get into fish and other animals, concentrating as they go up the food chain, which means health officials and scientists will need to monitor the ocean closely, given the lasting impact these fires could have. Lauren Sommer, NPR News.
13: This is NPR News.
0: You're listening to WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about a possible shakeup in American steel manufacturing with one of the largest steel makers in the country up for sale and its unionized workers saying they essentially have the power to veto any transaction they don't approve of. Low 70s and windy and rainy throughout the day today. There's a chance we may also see a thunderstorm. More showers possible tonight as it dips into the 60s. Showers and thunderstorms are possible tomorrow, too. Otherwise, it'll be overcast and in the upper 70s. Partly sunny on Sunday in the mid-70s. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture. Over 70 years of artisanal craftsmanship rooted in community and sustainability. Seven locations across Mass and New Hampshire. CircleFurniture.com.
0: State economic development leaders will meet with Black business owners in Boston's Nubian Square this morning. Nicole Obie is director of the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts. That's one of the groups taking part in the discussion. She says the state must do more to support Black businesses.
18: Our
26: businesses, they are expressing to us that their greatest challenge is access to adequate and affordable capital, to grow their businesses,
0: to launch their businesses. OB adds that the state must work to guarantee that black-owned firms are being considered for state contracts. Chase Bank is planning to open new branches in Dorchester and Marlboro by the end of the year. The openings are part of the bank's effort to expand in Massachusetts. The Boston Business Journal reports Chase has already opened 15 new branches in the state this year. That includes locations in Cambridge, Lawrence, and Worcester. It's 844.
6: Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at joycefdn.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
13: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Layla Faudil. Simone
14: Biles is making a comeback to gymnastics following a two-year mental health break. The four-time Olympic champion is now seeking her eighth all-around national title. She competes later today in the U.S. Gymnastics Championships in San Jose, California. And for more insight on where Simone Biles' career stands and what may lie ahead, I'm joined now by Kiki Baker-Barnes. She's the commissioner of the Gulf Coast Athletic Conference, which is made up of historically black colleges. Good morning, and thanks for being on the program.
22: Good morning, Layla. Great to be on with you today.
14: Well, thanks for being here. So let's start with this moment right now and what it means for Simone Biles' career.
22: Let me, th- let me tell you, I think that this is a pivotal moment because what I believe we've learned from Simone is that you can put yourself first and you can still not appear selfish and remain highly competitive. I believe that she's mastered marketing by showing the world how to deal with negativity and maintain her brand in a positive light mm. you know when she she made the decision to step away uh, from gymnastics she was criticized um, very strongly when she did that because in sports people often look uh, for you to press through and to press on and you you get glory by making it through a tough time uh, but she but she changed the model. She took a yeah. step away. And I really think um, seeing her now uh, in this particular moment, having the opportunity to now, if she takes care of business and she wins this championship, to be the most decorated man or woman gymnast is absolutely phenomenal. And I, and I really think that um, she is showing our world and our country. She's showing our our sports industry professional, that there's a better way and that we can take care of ourselves as well as still be extremely competitive.
14: I mean, I think people forget how difficult it is to have the expectation of always being great because she is such an incredible gymnast and does things that we haven't seen other people do. So what are some of the expectations the public and the gymnastics community has of her as she makes her comeback?
22: Well, I'm going to tell you Simone Biles is such an incredible gymnast that they have named moves after her. Um I read it I recently read a article where they were saying that there's another move she's going to be um attempting in her performances and that if she d- does this really well, she may have a fifth move named after her. So people wow. are really going to be looking for the energy and um, kind of, you know, is she is she going to really pull this off? Um, I also think there is this expectation for her to continue to be this role model uh, for young black athletes who are looking to do gymnastics. Um, The Gulf Coast Athletic Conference, which I'm commissioner of, is, um, as you said earlier, the only historically black college and university in the National Association of Intercollegiate Athletics. Well, this past year, we had our first gymnastics program. um, launched at Fisk University and then a second one at Talladega College. So um, I think her representation and what it means for young African-American women in gymnastics is just uh, critical and people are excited to see her perform.
14: That's Kiki Baker Barnes, Commissioner of the Gulf Coast Athletic Conference. Thank you for your time. Thank you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. and
13: I'm Steve Inskeep.
0: Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on the plane crash that's believed to have killed Russian paramilitary leader Yevgeny Prigozhin, and the allegations of sexist behavior against Spain, Spain's women's World Cup soccer coach. It's eight forty nine.
29: There is perhaps no symbol more strongly associated with Arizona than the saguaro cactus. But record-breaking heat this summer has left them dehydrated. And since saguaros weigh hundreds of pounds...
15: Eventually, you start to lose structural integrity near the base, and then the whole plant will just fall over.
29: How
11: scientists there are trying to keep saguaros alive, on All Things Considered, from NPR News.
0: Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Former President Donald Trump is free after being booked at an Atlanta jail last night on charges he tried to overturn 2020 state election results. Officials in Maui are suing the Hawaiian Electric Company over the wildfires there, saying the utility company was negligent by not turning the power off during the fires. And Boston Mayor Michelle Wu today plans to detail how her administration will deal with the tent encampment at the area known as Mass and Cass. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books, returning to Aeronaut brewing with a back-to-school grown-up book fair, Sunday, September 3rd from 2 to 6. Details at portersquarebooks.com And Vertex. Working for people living with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at vrtx.com.
0: There's a good chance of showers and maybe a thunderstorm throughout the day today. It'll be windy, and in the low 70s, the rain may continue tonight as it falls into the 60s. Cloudy tomorrow and near 80 with a chance of more showers and thunderstorms. Then it clears up for a partly sunny day on Sunday in the mid-70s. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston.
31: A private equity firm is buying Subway.
11: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.ai, this is enterprise AI.
31: From Marketplace. I'm Sabri Benishore in for David Broncaccio. Subway, the fast food chain, is selling itself to a private equity firm. Subway was founded 60 years ago in Connecticut. It's owned by the Buck and DeLuca families, and they have agreed to sell the company to Rourke Capital for nearly $10 billion, according to Reuters. Subway has had its struggles over the past decade. Fast food competition is fierce, but the company has seen a recent increase. In sales, the challenge for its new owners, how to keep that momentum going, Marketplace's Henry App reports.
21: Subway's new owners have to figure out how many locations the chain can support in the U.S. because during the Great Recession, the company added too many, says Jonathan Mays, editor-in-chief of Restaurant Business
8: Magazine. I would go to my, my little community center and there was a Subway in that day. So they were everywhere.
21: Since 2016, over 6,000 Subways have closed, Mays says, and even with sales now up, the new owners may need to close more. They can also change menus, layouts, and marketing, but Subway restaurants are operated by local franchisees, says Alex Suskind, a professor of food and beverage management at Cornell. Any
7: changes that you make in a franchise system can be very, very disruptive for operators.
21: A lot of times you get resistance. Meanwhile, the brand could grow internationally, says Sean Dunlop, an equity analyst at Morningstar. I would say West Europe and then, and then Latin America, the bigger markets like Brazil. If it can stabilize in the U.S. and expand overseas, Dunlop says, Subway's new owners could see a pretty good return, which is the goal of private equity. I'm Henry Epp for Marketplace.
31: You may soon be able to stream ESPN and live sports without having a cable or pay TV subscription. Disney, which owns ESPN, is reportedly talking to Amazon about partnering up to create a streaming version of the cable TV sports channel. This is according to tech news site The Information. ESPN has been a cash cow for Disney, but it's run into some trouble. Its cable audiences keep shrinking, and competition with other streaming services has gotten more intense. Marketplace's Nova Sappho has more.
8: The talks between Amazon and Disney are reportedly in their early stages. Amazon, which has its own streaming service and a cloud computing service that powers Netflix, would help with a streamed version of ESPN, the cable channel. Amazon could also take a minority stake in the sports network, according to the information, which would help inject much needed cash into ESPN. Bob Iger, who returned as CEO of Disney in November, has said that he's looking for strategic partners to take the sports network directly to consumers. The information says a subscription could cost between $20 to $35 a month. If these plans pan out, they would be a major shift for Disney and ESPN, which has been a key anchor channel for cable TV, helping to maintain subscribers who want access to a broad array of live sports programming. But that programming is getting more expensive to carry, while ad spending has shrunk. That's left ESPN, once a major cash engine, struggling to maintain revenues and profits. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. Dow, S&P,
31: and Nasdaq futures are all up in the three tenths to five tenths percent range. With the Dow futures up 161 points, the yield on the 10-year Treasury is creeping up 2.2, uh, 4.245. The United Auto Workers and electric vehicle battery maker Ultium Cells have reached a tentative agreement to raise worker wages at Ultium's Ohio battery plant. Ultium Cells is a joint venture of General Motors and LG Energy Solution. If approved by the union, workers would get an average raise of 25 percent, and hourly employees would receive back pay for every hour worked since December of 2022. GM stock is up three-tenths percent.
11: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. It's part of who they are. Learn more at schwab.com slash Schwab. And by otter.ai. If someone's late to a meeting, Otter's AI-powered meeting assistant catches them up with instant answers. More at otter.ai.
31: There is a shakeup brewing in American steel manufacturing. One of the largest steel makers in the country, U.S. Steel, is up for sale, and it's getting messy. The company's unionized workers say they essentially have the power to veto any transaction they don't approve of. But U.S. Steel disagrees. The question could take a while to resolve, and the final outcome of the sale could have big implications for both organized labor and the domestic steel economy. Ali Budner reports.
29: It's pretty unusual for a labor union to have any real power over the outcome of a company's sale. That's according to Mike Williams, a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. He says normally a facility would
30: just go for sale. Highest bidder? Good. Thanks. Goodbye. Good luck to the workforce.
29: But the United Steelworkers Union, which represents most of the employees of U.S. Steel, planned for this sort of buyout scenario.
30: The fact that the steelworkers bargained in a successorship clause into their basic labor agreement uh, was really important.
29: United Steelworkers wasn't available for an interview, but in a letter, the president said the union has the power to bid on U.S. steel or pick another company to do it for them. And the union has a clear favorite. It's Cleveland Cliffs, one of the other largest steel makers in the country. Also a union shop, as Jeffrey Hirsch, law professor at the University of North Carolina, points out.
8: That company already has a track record of working well with the union.
29: But U.S. Steel rejected Cleveland Cliffs' initial offer, saying in a letter that it was unreasonable. But the union could also reject U.S. Steel's choice for a buyer. All of this back and forth could take a lot of time. Hirsch says it could even lead to a strike.
8: It is possible that the union's arguments here could result in some sort of work stoppage and disruption in steel production.
29: There's a lot at stake here for the company and the workers, says Anne Marie Lafaso, a law professor at West Virginia University College of Law. The company that buys U.S. Steel could choose to close the plant, or move it to another state or overseas.
17: This is how a lot of union workers have historically lost their jobs in this country. Cleveland Cliffs
29: is a U.S. company, but senior equity analyst at KeyBank Capital Markets, Phil Gibbs, says there could be antitrust concerns if it acquires U.S. Steel.
21: This would be a combo of the number one and number two largest carbon sheet producers in the U.S. And that market concentration is something that we're flagging.
29: If that deal does go through, Gibbs says it would ratchet up the consolidation of the steel industry, something that companies down the supply chain, like automakers, will not be thrilled about. I'm Ali Budner for Marketplace.
31: And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshour with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media.
0: Windy and rainy today with temperatures in the low 70s. More showers and thunderstorms are possible tonight, and it'll be in the upper 60s. Saturday, overcast and near 80 with more showers and thunderstorms possible. Sunday, a mix of sun and clouds in the mid 70s. Right now, it's 64 degrees in Boston, and the BBC News Hour is coming up next.
1: I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.